Thank you, Karen. Well, in case you're still wondering what today is all about, if the decorations, uh, which Lenny Barris has put together for us there and uh, uh, Sue's talk have uh, left you in any doubt, today is Pentecost, uh, the day in the church year when we celebrate the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit on all those who trust in Jesus. And it's a day of celebration uh, because we remember a momentous historical occasion that happened 2,000 years ago when something happened. Something happened in history, in real time, which changed the course of the world forever. Uh, On Christmas Day we have a big celebration and we celebrate that God became one of us. God became a human being in the person of Jesus and that changed history forever because now God had united himself with humanity and he was with us in a new and remarkable way. On Easter Day we have a big celebration because we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and that changed history forever because in the person of Jesus the death knell has been sounded on death that because Jesus has defeated death, risen from the dead we have hope that death will not be the end for us either but that he will raise us up too. And today on Pentecost, we celebrate a moment in the history of the world and in the unfolding plans of God where something happens that changed everything from then on. And that something is the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit on his people. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, surely, Tim, you're you're overselling this. Um, Is Pentecost really such a big deal? We don't make as much of it often as Easter Day and Christmas Day, what is the big celebration? You might say, well, didn't the Holy Spirit exist before the day of Pentecost? Yes, he did. He's fully God, as we sang in uh, that song, reciting the creed, fully God, and he has existed forever. And you might say, well, wasn't the Holy Spirit active and doing things in the world before uh, the first day of Pentecost? Yes, he was. Um, You can read in Genesis chapter 1, right at the start of the Bible, the very beginning there, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, we're told, that God was active by his Spirit even in creation and God's Spirit has been active in the world ever since then. You might say, well, wasn't the Holy Spirit working in people prior to the day of Pentecost? Wasn't he empowering people even before then to work for God and to serve him? Well, yes and no. And this is the key point, I think, that we need to focus on as we think together today because Pentecost represents a key change in this area and a broadening and a deepening of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And to help us to see this and to understand it, I want us to go back in time, back in history, back into the Old Testament to this passage from Numbers chapter 11. Um, A passage which speaks about uh, God's people Israel wandering around in the desert on their way to the promised land because by going back in history before Pentecost we can uh, look at the hopes that existed um, which looked forward to this decisive day in history which we're celebrating today. So if you have your Bibles there, you might like to look at Numbers uh, chapter 11. 
Uh, Karen just read for us a handful of verses, but it's helpful to sort of look a little bit around that and to see something of the context to understand what's going on. So God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt where they've been slaves for many years. Um, A whole lot of miraculous signs performed through Moses and uh, in the end Pharaoh says, uh, you can go, you're no longer my slaves, you can leave. So the people of Israel leave Egypt and they head towards the promised land, the land that God had promised them. Uh, It should have been a journey of uh, no more than a couple of weeks if they had have gone the direct route and gone straight there. But because of their faithlessness, because they doubt God and his power and his goodness towards them, um, they don't obey what he's told them to do. And as a result, they're consigned to wander around and around in a, uh, a circle in the wilderness for 40 years before they're able to enter the land that God had promised them. And the book of Numbers tells uh, much of this period of history as Israel is wandering around in the wilderness before they're able to enter the promised land. And um, there's a lot going on in the book of Numbers, but one of the key themes in the book of Numbers is whinging. Time and time again, the people whinge. They complain about things. They complain to God. They complain to Moses. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. Things were so much better when they were slaves back in Egypt than it is today. Uh, They don't like the way that Moses is leading them and so on and so forth. And uh, chapter 11 has started with a complaint. The complaint on this occasion is that they don't like the type of food that they're getting. So God has been providing uh, what's called manna, this kind of miraculous substance which is a bit like bread and every morning when they wake up uh, it's there waiting for them so they can eat but quite frankly they're sick of it they've probably been eating it for a while now and they're over it and they want something else on the menu today thank you very much in fact they're quite clear about what they want they want some meat (laughs) give us some meat clearly not vegetarians the people of Israel and they want some meat to eat so they go and they whinge to Moses about it And Moses in turn takes the complaint to God and complains or whinges to God about it. God's not particularly impressed. In fact, we read there that God becomes exceedingly angry um, when faced with the complaints of the people. And that troubles Moses and his response is, well, what I would say in our house if one of my children did this was he cracks it, um, is how I'd put it. It's too much for him. And this is what he says. This is word for word from earlier in chapter 11. This is Moses to God. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I've found favour in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. I'm sure Moses is not the last leader 
uh, to feel this way. Uh, but as you can see, he is sick and tired of leading, of leading this ungrateful lot and he can't do it anymore. There's no way he can meet their demands, the burden's too great. He'd rather die than take responsibility of leading this people. He's at rock bottom and he tells God so. Well, God is gracious in his response. He hears the cry and he says two things in response. Firstly, Moses, I want you to gather 70 elders, respected people, and they will share the burden of leadership. You shouldn't have to do it by yourself. I will give my Holy Spirit to these 70 others and they can help share the load, the spiritual load of leadership in Israel. And secondly, he says that he will provide the meat that they've been asking for, which he does miraculously with a flock of birds uh, um, that they're able to eat. But it's the first of these promises that I want us to focus on because it narrows in on the point. You see, in the Old Testament, God does give his Holy Spirit to individuals, but it's only to a restricted few. Only a select few receive the Spirit of God to empower them so that they can lead his people. So Moses has God's Holy Spirit working in his life so that he is empowered to lead Israel. And now God says he'll share that with others, that 70 others will share the gift of God's Spirit so that they can lead. Later on in the Old Testament, God's Spirit is given to the kings of Israel, to some priests and to all the prophets who speak on God's behalf. But it's always just a select few within the nation of Israel who receive God's Spirit and are able to lead his people. We see the fulfilment of this promise of God to the 70 in the Bible reading that Karen read for us earlier. So the 70 elders gather at the tabernacle, the tent, where God was to meet with his people. Actually not 70, um, only 68 turn up. Uh, And God comes down to meet with them. It's symbolised by a cloud showing the presence of God coming to meet with his people. Uh, And he gives them his Holy Spirit, causing them to prophesy. We don't know exactly what that means in this instance. It doesn't describe the details. Uh, Maybe they spoke in different languages like we see on the day of Pentecost. Maybe it's some other type of spiritual utterance. We're told that they only did it this once. It was a one-off occurrence. The gift of God's Spirit was a permanent gift, but the utterance, the prophecy that happened was a one-off. And the intention, it seems, of whatever it was, was to demonstrate that God's Spirit really had been given to them. If anyone was in doubt that God was doing this, this was a sign that it was happening. And it was to help them, I suppose, as they went into this ongoing spiritual leadership of God's people. Now, I said only 68 uh, turned up because, as always happens, two people were late. Or they turned up to the wrong tent, maybe a GPS error. Um, Somehow they got the wrong memo. Uh, notice that their names are recorded. <laughs> no one else's name, but the two guys who failed to turn up. Yep, we've got to say who they were. Eldad and Medad, uh, recorded for posterity because they didn't make it. But turning up at the tabernacle didn't rule them out of this blessing. They didn't miss out on the gift of the Spirit that God had promised just because they turned up at the wrong place or just because they were late. God's Spirit comes upon them as well and they prophesy where they are in the camp. That leads to a young man, you probably know someone a bit like this, uh, running to tell Moses, to Dob. Moses, Eldad and me, Dad, are prophesying in the camp. 
I'm pretty sure that's the voice he would have used. Um, and, and Joshua, who's Moses' assistant, jumps in as well. He's um, worried on Moses' behalf that he's going to lose his position or his leadership and he says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses' reply is wonderful. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That sentence, that desire of Moses echoes down through the centuries. I wish, oh, I wish that God would give his spirit to all of his people. Oh, that a day would come when the spirit of God was not limited to a few leaders. Oh, for a day that there'd be a flood of the Holy Spirit poured out so that everyone who knows God would receive this spirit and it would empower their lives. Oh, for a day like that. You can hear the longing, can't you? Wouldn't you want that wish to be fulfilled? And as Moses' desire from Numbers 11 echoes down through the centuries, it's picked up and it's carried by others and it becomes more than just a wish that this would happen. It becomes a promise of God. The prophet Joel, speaking words from God, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel says that that day that Moses wished for, that's coming. God is going to do this. He's not going to limit the Holy Spirit to a select few. He's going to pour out the spirit on all of his servants, men and women, young and old. And the longed-for day draws nearer. Uh, As the New Testament begins right at the start of the book of Mark, Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1 we see John the Baptist coming, calling people, turn back to God, turn back to God. I need to prepare the way for you because someone is coming. John says, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Someone's coming, a powerful one, the promised king that God would said he would send and he will baptise, pour out the promised Holy Spirit. And so Jesus arrives and the hope voiced by Moses over a thousand years earlier has its fulfilment. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus goes up into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the position of power, Lord over the whole universe, And from there, he pours out the Holy Spirit, not just on a select few, but on all those who trust in him and follow him as their king. Uh, Jesus has told his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the day that this event will take place. And in Acts chapter 2, as we read, we see the fulfilment of this promise where the Holy Spirit is poured out, accompanied by signs, as in Numbers 11, to show that it's really happening, the wind and the fire to demonstrate the reality of this. And no one in the room misses out. Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the key words there, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. A crowd gathers, as as Sue said, wondering what's going on, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches the good news of Jesus. 
of his death and his resurrection. And at the end of the sermon, every preacher longs for this to happen, uh, they're cut to the heart, they're so convicted by what he said about Jesus, they ask him, what shall we do? What do we need to do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says, if you turn to Jesus, your sins will be forgiven, but you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those two things go together. When a person turns to Christ, their sins are taken away from them by Jesus and they do receive this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. This is now an open offer. The Holy Spirit is not limited to a few leaders. The Holy Spirit is not limited to a select group of Christians, a sort of spiritual elite amongst followers of Jesus who have the Spirit while others do not. No, all who turn to Jesus in faith and repentance have the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. On that day, on that day of Pentecost, the first day of Pentecost, a particular day in history, something changes forever as the risen Jesus pours out the Spirit on all who trust in him. The floodgates are opened and the blessing of God is poured out. It's a momentous event in the unfolding plans of God where something changes, where now all God's people are empowered to serve him and to share his good news with others. And so let's think about what that means for us. We are people living in this period of history. We are post Pentecost people. We are people who follow Jesus after that event has happened and so that has huge implications for how we do church together. Every single follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit living in them and empowering them and so we're all called to play our part in the building up of the church. Uh, The Bible talks about the different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to each person and that all of those gifts are needed, every single one of them, that all of us have a part to play, a role to play, something to offer in the life of the church and in the service of God. There's still leaders within the church, in the same way that Moses was still the leader of Israel, even though he now had 70 to help him. The New Testament still speaks about leadership in the church, about overseers, elders, deacons, people who have a particular responsibility to lead in the church. But a key part of leadership in the church is releasing, encouraging, empowering and training people to serve God and to do ministry together. It's not the job of the senior minister and the staff, the wardens and the parish council to do all the ministry and to jealously guard it and to say, sorry, you can't do that, you're not one of us. This is our domain? No. The role of leadership in the church is actually to think about how we can share the work together and as a whole church use the gifts that God has given us empowered by the Holy Spirit to work together. Uh, As we put together our our church vision, um, two of our strategic directions um, state this uh, particularly strongly. It's there throughout, but two of them are sort of named, two of the six. Uh, The first strategic direction is to empower church members for mission and ministry. This is 
kind of the first thing that we say we want to do. We want to empower everybody to do the work together through increased focus on training, through uh, freeing people up so that they have uh, time and resources available, through a greater focus on discipleship, personal growth in faith, through a reliance on the Holy Spirit um, in prayer. You know, we want people to be empowered to explore opportunities for how they can serve God. Uh, things like our mission action teams are ways to think of new ideas for how we can reach out into our community. And the art exhibition Breath um, is an example of a, an idea that's come forward as a way to do that. We've tried to encourage sort of new and different life groups to start uh, as well so that more people can be drawn into the life of the church and have a role in uh, ministering to each other. But the theological principle that lies behind all of it is that God gives every single believer his Holy Spirit. Every single one of us will have particular passions and abilities and ideas. Every single one of us is needed and that these ideas don't need to be initiated only by leaders within the church, although there does need to be sort of testing and accountability, but every single one needs to be released to think about how they can play their part. Our sixth strategic direction is to encourage a culture of mutual care. Again, the New Testament is full of all of these one another sayings. Be kind to one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, all of these sorts of things as to how we are to relate to one another. Um, the emphasis is that all of us have a responsibility to each other person in the church. So the biblical model for care within God's people is that we all care for each other. Uh, it's often a part of my prayers uh, where I, I'm giving thanks to God for all of the acts of care that happen in the life of this church every single week, most of which I don't even know about, but people are loving one another and caring for each other in a myriad of different ways throughout the week and throughout homes and throughout this area. Um, our life groups are the best place where this happens. It's easiest to sort of exercise mutual care in that sort of way because there's a small group of people that we're committed to uh, and we know that group more intimately and we can pray for them and help them in practical ways. But it extends way beyond that, doesn't it? Uh, over morning tea today, opportunities to do mutual care for each other and to exercise the gifts of the Spirit with one another and in informal ways through the week. Uh, the point that I'm making is that this, is not, this approach is not just sort of strategic and sensible in a large church. This is a good way to care for each other. My point is that it's biblical and theological and it's founded on what we're celebrating today on the day of Pentecost. It's founded on the fact that God gives every single believer his Holy Spirit to help us to grow and to equip us and empower us to work for God and to love and serve other people. My point is that we stand in a privileged position in the history of the world and in the unfolding plans of God because we are people who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift given only to kings and priests and prophets and a select few in the Old Testament. It's not limited. It's given to you if you're a follower of Jesus to empower you that you might serve God in wonderful ways. 
We're all recipients of the gift that Moses wished for and longed for. Oh, that the day would happen, and it has. As recipients of that gift, the challenge is how we'll live our lives in a way that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, asking God to fill us, to transform us, to transform every aspect of our lives that we might live for him so that we can better love and care for and build up our fellow believers, so that we can better reach out with the good news of Jesus to those who do not yet know him so that they might know the forgiveness of sins and that they too might know the wonderful gift of God's Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill us anew today with your Holy Spirit, reminding us of the wonderful blessing that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his pouring out of the Spirit on us. Help us not to take for granted, but to realise where we stand in history as Spirit-filled believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by your Spirit to live and work for you. And we do pray that you would show us how we might serve you using the particular gifts that you have given us and that you might strengthen and empower us to do wonderful works in your name, whatever it is that you've called us to do. And we ask this for your sake. Amen.